Well, after a short break for Easter, we're back in our teaching series in Exodus today. Exodus is a book that tells the story of the greatest redemptive event in the life of God's people before Jesus, before the cross and the empty tomb. And it also tells a story and pulls back the curtain to show us who God is and the kind of people that God wants us to be. And so in part one of this teaching series, our focus was in Egypt and what happened there. And now in part two, our focus is going to shift to life outside of Egypt, life on the other side of the Red Sea and God's people learning what it looks like to live a life with God in the world he created, to be his people who live in a relationship with him. And so in other words, part two of Exodus sees the focus shift from rescue to relationship. Who is this God? And what does it mean to be in a relationship with him and live with him in the world that he created? That's the focus uh, for part two, and it kicks off as we join Israel in the wilderness and watch in the very first steps, in the very first days, as Israel is led out into the wilderness, away from the Red Sea, how God forms how they think about who he is and what it means to be his people. And so as we come to the end of Exodus chapter 15 and pick up the story there, we're going to see God begin this formation work right away in verse 22, where we read this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he, Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where they were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Well, much of the story of Exodus from here on out is going to be set up by what happens in these few verses in Israel's first days in the wilderness. It's a preview, a first glimpse of how the rest of Exodus is largely going to go. And what's striking right from the get-go is just how quickly Israel loses sight of the God who rescues them from Egypt. See, no sooner have the people finished singing to God about his love and his power and the great rescue that he orchestrated at the Red Sea than we find them grumbling against Moses and ultimately against God because they don't have what they need. Three days they have been in the desert when we pick up the story and they have found no water. They're thirsty. They need something to quench their thirst. And then they do find water, but that water's Bitter. They can't drink it. It tastes bad. And that's where we find Israel as this part of their journey begins in a tough moment, a very human moment, a very real moment of need and lack and scarcity. And to be fair, this is a big deal. In the desert, no water equals death. So life and death are on the line here. This is only to be fair to Israel. Yet at the same time, Exodus tells us that when they are faced with this, they grumble. 
Or in other words, they complain, they criticize, they blame Moses and ultimately God for the predicament that they now find themselves in. Things in the wilderness, as we begin, have not started well. This is the situation for God's people on the other side of Egypt. And it's here in this moment of scarcity and fear and of grumbling that God begins to graciously show his people who he is and what he's like. And we'll see this throughout the next few chapters that God is going to take the circumstances and he uses the circumstances of our lives to show us who he is and why we can trust him. And so over the next few chapters, there's going to be this interplay between this very human needs of the people and a God is going to use that to teach them about himself and why they can trust him. But before we get there, we actually have to slow down and look at the human side of this story so that we can really see what, what is going on in the wilderness, so that we can really see what Exodus and ultimate God, ultimately God is wanting to show us. And so to do that, we need to start by asking a question. Why do people do the things they do? Like, why do we say the things we say? Why does your friend get upset in the middle of that conversation that you're having with her? Why do you get angry when someone cuts you off in traffic? Why is he so controlling and critical? Why would someone risk their family and their future for just 20 minutes of pleasure? And why are you afraid of what other people think? Or here, why do God's people complain and criticize Moses when they're faced with the circumstances they're faced with? Why do people do what they do? Well, the answer, according to the Bible, is the heart. And when I, when I say the heart, I'm not talking about what we normally think about, what I'm actually talking about is the inner person. And all the terms that the Bible uses to describe that, like your spirit, your soul, your mind, your emotions, your will, the place where your passions and your desires lie. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the heart. It's the part of you that the Bible calls the essential core. It's the operating system inside of you that shapes and produces everything that you and I say and do. The way that Jesus talked about it went like this. And in one of the Gospels, uh, one of the biographies of Jesus, Jesus taught this. He said, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So in other words, everything you say and do comes from your heart which means it's not the person in your life that makes you respond in the way you do. It's not the circumstances or the situations that you find yourself in that make you say and do what you say and do. It's your heart. And this is a backward to how we normally think about this. I mean, think about it. We normally think it's the situations or the people around us that cause us to respond in the way we do, but the Bible is coming along and it says it's actually the other way around. Like what one writer says, his name is Paul Tripp, he says, we speak and act the way we do because of what's in our hearts. There may be no more important thing to say about how people function, yet this seems hard for us to accept. In many ways, we deny this connection and blame people and circumstances for our actions and words, but Jesus calls us to humbly admit that relationships and circumstances are only the occasions in which our hearts reveal themselves. Did you catch that? See, what happens to us and around us is what reveals the condition of our heart. 
And that has bearing for you and for me and for God's people in the wilderness because even though their response is fair given the situation they're in, the life and death situation they find themselves in, it's also true that this situation reveals what's going on in their hearts. They don't have water. And so what do they do? They criticize, they complain, they blame Moses, revealing that they are worried and afraid because they don't think they're going to have what they need and they don't yet trust God enough to be able to take care of them and to provide for them. Even though, even though, and this is the, the part that's so striking to me, is that even though they have had such ample evidence that God can take care of them, and he will, but in this moment, they've lost sight of that. They can't see it or remember how they were enslaved and oppressed and how God saw that and he entered into history to do something about it, saying to Moses, the leader, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In this moment, the people forgot that God said this and then he went and did it. Which speaks to the power of our circumstances that they can have to draw our eyes away from God and what's true about him. Here, all they can see is what they don't have, what they need and what is scarce in their life. This is the human side of this story. But the question is, what about the God side? What does he do? How does he respond? Well, you think, maybe like I do, that he might give up on them or get impatient with them or get angry with them, but this God doesn't. Instead, he uses his power to make the bitter water sweet. And then he leads his people beside abundant water into shade in the desert so they can have what they need, so they can have water to quench the thirst, so that they could have rest in the shade and be out of the heat. Two gracious acts from a really good God. One is supernatural and the other is natural, both showing us that God's grace is greater than our grumbling. His grace is greater than our grumbling, that even when we grumble, and boy do we grumble at God sometimes, that this God will graciously provide what we need because he loves us and he is committed to our well-being because that's who this God is. And Israel, well, they're going to get a lesson about this over the next few chapters, and they're going to see this over and over again. This God, show up and show them this is who I am over the next few chapters. That this God is good, and he will take care of his people. But it's going to take time for that to sink in. It's going to take patience from God, and it's going to take his people learning this about him through the different experiences and events that they're going to face with God in the wilderness. See, Israel, they already know that God is a great rescuer. They've seen that with their very own eyes and experienced that firsthand in Egypt, but now they are needing to know God and learn to trust him in a deeper way. And this, if you look at the story of Exodus from a 30,000-foot view, is the movement of the story. It's from rescue to relationship. See, rescue is always going to be the foundation for God's people, but we are always saved from something to something. And now, Israel is going to have to learn what they've been saved to. They have to learn how to live with God in the world that he created. And so as one chapter ends and another begins, the question is, will Israel learn from this first experience at the end of chapter 15 with God? 
The answer is not really. Chapter 16, verse 1 shows us this. Check this out. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so we're just one month outside of Egypt and already God is showing how gracious he is and the lengths that he's going to go to to take care of his people. But very quickly, another situation arises that reveals that Israel still has not learned its lesson. They still have not come to trust in this God because now they're running out of food. They've brought food with them out of Egypt, but that is getting low. And surely you read this text and you think this time they're going to respond differently. They have just seen God be so gracious to them, and surely this time they will respond differently. But they don't. Again, they grumble. And again, they blame Moses for, hap for what's happening. And this time they actually take it up another notch and they actually accuse Moses of not having their best interests at heart. And they even go so far as to say that we would rather have died as slaves in Egypt than have you lead us out here to die hungry in the wilderness. I mean, that's how twisted it's gotten for Israel. It's so bad that they look back on their life in Egypt with rose-colored glasses and they forget the slavery and the oppression, the beatings and the whippings, the fear and the pain and the longing that they had to be set free. All that goes out the window and they're like, remember how much food we had there? We were never hungry in Egypt. Life was better there. Yeah, but slavery. And their response is, yeah, but we're hungry and we want food. You know, that's a very real need. And some of us, we, we know what that's like to be hungry. We've been in that place where we are truly hungry and we're without food. And we're worrying about where our next meal is going to come from. Some of us know that feeling all too well. And we identify with that experience of Israel. But most of us, we aren't at the place where we have never been in the place where we know that feeling. We don't know what it's like to feel truly hungry. Most of us have what we need and when we want it. And more than enough than we actually need. We don't spend our days worrying about putting food on the table or if we'll have enough money to buy groceries next month. I mean, at least not all the time. For most of us, it's hard for us to grasp the, the depth of worry and fear that might be gripping Israel in this moment because we're not used to the level of scarcity that they are in this moment. And we're not used to not having what we need. And it's so interesting to me that this story takes place in a desert. And in the, in the Bible, the desert is a place that's wild, it's uninhabited, it's a place of scarcity and lack. And notice, this is the environment that prompts the people of God to respond in the way that they do. And it's also the same kind of environment that prompts us to respond in the way that we do too. The environment of scarcity and lack. And what I mean by that is that we live in a culture of abundance. And we're used to having everything we want, when we want it, and how we want it. All it takes is one click and it's ours. Same day delivery, food delivered to our doorsteps, access to whatever we want and need, when we want it, and when we need it. And we're so used to it that we have a hard time having to wait for it. And we're not able to get what we want. It's actually very difficult. When something's not in stock or something like that, 
we get frustrated, we get angry, we get disappointed. Um, we get angry even at the delivery guy or the company or the grocery store or whatever that is. We're not used to living with scarcity and lack and having to wait for something. And this is what happens in a culture where the customer is sovereign. So you're told and I'm told that we deserve this and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so when our delivery is late or we, what we want is out of stock, what do we do? We respond by getting frustrated. We send angry emails. We call. We get disappointed, angry even, because I'm not getting what I want when I want it. This is in and of itself a problem, but it becomes an even greater problem when this seeps into our relationship with God. And we start treating the God of heaven and earth like the Amazon delivery guy who didn't get our package to us on time. See, when that happens, we shake our fist at God and we think, you're not as good as you say you are because I needed this and you didn't give it to me in the timing or the way I wanted. Or I needed you to come through, but you didn't. And I know that I've been there before and maybe you've been there too. And so I don't think that we're all that different from the people of God in the wilderness. And I think we still need to learn the same kind of lessons that God is trying to teach them in the wilderness all these years later, or at least be reminded of the truth that God is good and we can trust him to take care of us in the moments when we don't have what we need. Yes, he might not do it in the way we want or in the timing we want, but he is a God who is good and he can be trusted to take care of us. And so what happens next is important for Israel in the wilderness and important for us to see. Because in their scarcity and in their lack, God is going to show his people who he is and why he can be trusted. Because as soon as his people stop grumbling, he answers. Verse 4 of chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so God's answer to the people's hunger is to provide them with bread from heaven. Not just any bread, but bread from the very home of God. Bread that he will miraculously make show up every single day. Every day it's going to fall and Israel will have what they need. All they need to do is to go out and gather what they need each day. That's it. And oh yeah, God says, tonight I'm also going to give you meat too. Tonight you're going to eat meat and tomorrow your stomachs will be full because of what I give you. I mean, come on, who is like this God who meets grumbling with grace? 
Who is like this God who satisfies his people's hunger and quenches their thirst? Who is like this God who makes an effort to remind his people that he's there with them and they're not alone? by showing them in a cloud, signaling, signaling to them that I'm here, I'm with you, you are not alone in this place. See, only this God is like this. Only this God does this. He meets his pe people's practical needs, and he also meets their deeper need too. Because this moment is about so much more than filling stomachs and quenching thirst. God is going beyond simply doing that which is beautiful in and of itself, but he's going beyond that to teach his people about who he is. And our evidence is right there in the text. And in verse six, God says, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 12, he says, then after I do all this for you, then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. See, God is saying to his people, you will know me by what I, by what I do for you. That you will know that I rescued you by how I take care of you. You will remember how I have protected you and provided for you by the things that I do for you. And you will see who I am and you will grow to trust me. Just watch and see what I will do for you. I'm the God who rescued you from Egypt and I'm the God who's going to quench your thirst and satisfy your hunger. And you know what? From this day forward, God does it. Day in and day out, he does what he says he will do. Starting that night and the very next day, check out what happens. Verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So not only is this God able to provide what his people need, not only is he able to quench his people's thirst and satisfy his people's hunger, this God can be trusted to. What he says he will do, he will do. Here, he gives the people meat that very night, just like he said he would. And then the very next morning, he gives them the bread, what's called manna, the bread from heaven, just like he said he would do, which means he can be trusted to meet the hungers and the thirsts of his people. And not just in a minimal way, but a lavish way, in an extravagant way. See, I don't know if you caught it, but the people have more than enough. There is no lack. They have gone from lack to having more than they actually need. Every day, stomachs are full. Every day, thirst is quenched. They have more than enough. And you know what that is? That's grace. That's grace. And in this, we see something of who our God is that this God is able to provide what his people need, that this God is able to quench the thirst and satisfy the hunger of his people, that this God is lavish in grace and this God can be trusted. This is the God of Exodus. And this is the God who is here in this room with you today. And you wanna know what he's like? Look at how he cares for and provides for his people in the desert when they have need. 
Look at how his grace is greater than their grumbling. Look at how patient and kind he is, how he doesn't give up on his people, but sticks with them through thick and thin, not just for one day, but for day after day after day, for 40 long years. And that's how chapter 16 ends, by saying the people of Israel ate the manna, the bread from heaven, 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This is how faithful and gracious God is. He's committed to his people. He's able to take care of them, and he wants to do it if they will only trust him. And at the end of the day, day, that's where this story leads us. It leads us toward God, toward who he is and what he's like. And it leads us to a place where you and I have to decide if we're going to trust him or not based on what we know is true about him, based on what we believe in this moment about him. And what we know about him from today is this, is that he is good and that he can be trusted to take care of us in the way that we need. And so the question is, can you trust him? And the lesson today is not that God is going to meet all your practical needs in the same way that he did for Israel. He's not a vending machine where he just pops out what you need when you want it. He might give you what you need practically, but he also might not. And so the lesson is not that God is going to do the exact same thing that he's doing for Israel here. The lesson is that this is the kind of God we have, that he is gracious and he is good, that he is with you and he is for you, and that he can be trusted to give you what you need, not just what you want. Because you and I, here's the reality, we're going to get hungry again. We're going to get thirsty again. We will lack what we need as we go through life, and there will be moments of scarcity. God's not always going to answer our prayers, and he's not going to meet every one of our practical needs. And that might be hard to hear, but also hear today that God has already done something to take care of your deepest hungers and your deepest thirst, the ones that ultimately you can't take care of on your own. The ones you have spent your entire life trying to satisfy, but you just can't. You've been looking to things like power or money or sex or accomplishments or relationships to a job or a degree or letters behind or in front of your name, asking those things to give you what they can never give you because they weren't created for that, asking them to satisfy your deepest hungers and your greatest thirsts. And so today, you can look at those things. You continue running the race, trying to ask something or someone other than God to satisfy your deepest hungers or thirst. Or you can look to Jesus and you can have your deepest thirst quenched and your deepest hungers satisfied. Because this story in Exodus is about bread and water, but ultimately this story is pointing us to a moment hundreds of years before this story when Jesus walked on earth to a time when he taught things like this in one of the biographies about his life called John. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Or another time he taught this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. And so yes, Jesus can fill your stomachs with food and he can give you water to drink. That is grace. That is common grace that God gives to all people. But more than that, Jesus is saying that he is the one who can fill the hungry places of your life. 
It's Jesus saying, I'm the one who can quench your deepest thirst. I can fill and satisfy those parts of your life that you just can't seem to fill, that nothing that you have tried to fill your life with can actually fill, maybe for a moment, but not forever. That's his invitation to you and I, that he can quench your deepest thirst and satisfy what nothing else can satisfy. He's offering that to you and to me today, that he is the one who can satisfy the hunger of the human soul and quench the thirst of the human heart. See, what God did for his people in Exodus, he's done most fully for his people in Jesus. He's reached into the world and he's made a way for you and me to have our deepest hungers and thirsts satisfied. And so you can get hungry and thirsty again. You will face times of scarcity and need. That's a part of life. But Jesus is offering you and me something deeper today. He's offering to satisfy your soul. And if Jesus has done this, and if he really does offer this to you and to me, then the question I have for you and me today is, can you trust him to take care of you like he took care of Israel in the desert? Or put another way, can you trust that Jesus is good and he will give you what you need when you need it? It's gonna take faith. It's gonna take trusting him, taking him at his word, and it's not always gonna be easy. In fact, it's probably gonna be really hard, but the one thing that we can stand on, the one thing that we can hold on to today is that this God, our God, loves you and wants to take care of you. He's showing you who he is in the Exodus and in Jesus, and he's inviting you today to trust him and the question is, will you do it? Will you trust him? Because if you do, and the answer is yes, you will find what Israel found in the wilderness, that this God is good, that he can be trusted, and that he can satisfy the hunger of your soul and quench the thirst of your heart. That's what we find when we trust Jesus. That's what we find from this story that can speak to you and to me today.